Hello, and welcome back to the Dialogue Book Report podcast. My name is Christina. I am the nonfiction book review editor for Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. Andrew Hall's not with me today, so it's just me. But I am joined by Dr. Patrick Mason, a man who in this community probably really needs no introduction. Dr. Mason has a PhD in history from Notre Dame. He has published widely in Mormon studies and in history. He has served as the president of the Mormon History Association. He is the Leonard J. Arrington Chair of Mormon Studies at Utah State University. And today we're going to be talking actually about two of his books. One he published in 2020, Restoration, God's Call to the 21st Century World. And this year he published Proclaim Peace, The Restoration's Answer to an Age of Conflict. Hi, Patrick. Hey, Christina. It's great to be here. Thanks. I'm so excited for these. And I want to tell an anecdote about why I bought Restoration. <laughs> because <Okay. laughs> as I've mentioned to you, I mean, this book wasn't written for me as right. you like this book wasn't written for me. We can just be honest. Neither yep. of them were. Not primarily. I'm very pleased that you read it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think especially Restoration. I don't think this yes. was this yeah. wasn't targeted to millennial Catholics. Certainly not. But every year at MHA, I always buy a new book that's outside of what I would normally read. And that's a good they, habit, by the way. That's a good it's practice. A, it's a fun one. I have I have books. I have I mean I do this at AAR too, and I have books on like tomato growing and <laughs> it's great. But they didn't bring a lot of books up because it was, you know, COVID and uh but benchmark brought a stack of your book. And I was like, well, I guess I'll buy this because Rosemary Card told me I should read it. Not me again, because it's not for me, but she told her audience to read it. And kind of in the middle of panels, I sat down and I opened it and I read it in one day because it's a short read. It's a very and, short book. And it was one of my favorite books of 2020. Well, thank you very much. And that I loved it. I loved it. It was so hopeful. It felt really new to what I guess I thought devo- more devotional writing and Mormon studies was. It didn't feel, it didn't feel dated. I don't know. I guess I had a perception of what Mormon devotional writing was. I don't know. I really loved it. And so I wanted to start there by asking you about this. I mean, this was written for Latter-day Saints by a Latter-day Saint. And a lot of people would say that that's not academic. We can agree to disagree with that. But that's part of a longer tradition in Mormon studies. I'm thinking, you know, in 2017, Maxwell Institute did that edited volume in honor of Richard Bushman to be learned as good. Um, The disciple scholar thing is a thing in Mormon studies. And so I want to know if you can talk about why that matters to you, how you see yourself in that tradition, and then also how these two books fit within that. Yeah, great question. So no, I I don't see this book in particular as academic, not in the way of, of a lot of my other writings. I mean, it's informed by, you know, some of my research and uh, some of the chapters kind of have a historical uh, sensibility uh, to them. But no, this this is a this is a book for Latter-day Saints by a Latter-day Saint. And it's uh, it's it's devotional writing. Uh, and I'm totally comfortable with that. It's frankly, one of the benefits of tenure is that I I don't feel the pressure that every word I write has to has to be for my promotion committee. So this book actually doesn't show up on my CV or it didn't originally. Now I've restructured my CV. I think now I have a section for like the popular writing or, or or something like that. But this is not a book for the academy, and I'm totally comfortable with that. Again, I'm at a I'm very fortunate to be at a place in in my career. Uh, where again, I I can experiment and do some other things, and so I I'm a member of the Latter Day Saint community. It's a community that that means a lot to me. It's the the religion means a lot to me, 
Uh, and frankly, this was my COVID project. <laughs> this this was literally the last social engagement I had before everything got shut down in March 2020 was a, a dinner with Bill and Susan Turnbull. Bill is the co-founder of Faith Matters, which published the book. And then Terrell Givens was there too. And they they pitched the idea of, of this new little book series. Faith Matters had always been just an online presence. And they said, hey, we're thinking about getting in the book publishing business and uh, and publishing books that kind of help breathe new life into the tradition. And I said, well, I've kind of been thinking about this uh, for a little while. And they said, "That's that sounds great. So literally, because all the archives were closed down, all my academic projects, I couldn't make any real progress on those things. So I sat down and this book got written from March through like July, August 2020, uh, edited, and it was out in print in December of 2020. This was a nine month start to finish project. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's wild. We had very different COVID project experiences. Yeah. As, of, as opposed to the other book we're going to be talking about, which was a 10-year project, literally. So oh, wow. These, these are like the two uh, sides of the spectrum. I mentioned to you that I saw, I kind of see these books working together in a way. I I really, and this is, you know, this is just the way I, because I read them. I reread Restoration and then I immediately read Proclaim Peace. And so I kind of read Proclaim Peace as almost like a part two of restoration because in restoration you open i think you say the word ongoing like 50 times as you kind of set this framework of this ongoing thing then you're like here's this new thing i want to talk about within this framework of restoration is peace and peace studies and nonviolence. but in restoration you know the idea of restoration is always not always but it's very often a looking back of like we're restoring this old thing we're bringing back this old thing it's this authentic church it's this ancient church and we're just putting we're plopping it right here and being done and there has been a new emphasis of you know the windows of heaven are still open god still talks hear him all of these kind of slogans that we hear and the way that you write it really kind of made me think of this bigger discussion that happens in christian theology about you know process theology we're god's not done we're not done we can all just keep being part of this how do you i guess how would you see this in terms of because i read it as a as a theological text oh yeah oh yeah Um, how would you kind of place this or hope to place it within a broader theological Christian discussion? Well, I mean, you probably noticed it. I mean, I'm, I'm very, I'm primarily formed by my Mormonism, but I'm uh, secondarily formed by lots of other things, in, including my encounter with Roman Catholicism um, at Notre Dame and, and ever since. So y- you will know this, Christina, that the, the Second Vatican Council uh, was sort of tasked. Uh, John the twenty, Pope John the twenty third, who opened the council, talked about opening the windows and sort of letting the, the the air come in, and that's what I was really trying to do with this book. That was the image very much in my mind, and you know, it, it was this sense that of, of capitalizing on some of these statements from from church leaders like Dieter Uchtdorf and others who have talked about an ongoing revelation. There's like, what what would it look like if we were serious about that? <laughs> you know, what what would it look like if we really meant that? Uh, if we, I have a lot of Pentecostal friends and colleagues, and sometimes they uh, can be a little bit, you know, critical in a friendly way. They say, hey, you, you know, you Latter-day Saints, you talk about all the spiritual gifts and you talk about prophecy and all this kind of stuff, but where's where's the new stuff, right? I mean, is, is the spirit really working uh, in, in your church, in your, in your community? They don't mean that in, in a mean way. Um, it's, it's an honest question. So for me, I actually do feel, uh, I mean, I'll speak theologically because it's a theological book. I mean, I do feel the Holy Spirit moving uh, within the community. And so if, if that's true, where is it moving us to? 
Uh, and can we move in into some directions where we haven't always been? It, it just doesn't make any sense to me to, to have a restoration that stops. And so what does it mean to kind of lean into that into that concept, especially because the 21st century is not the 19th century? Yeah, and I just want to give reader listeners kind of a taste of what you mean by this. In the opening of the book, you say, the restoration is God's ongoing invitation to modern humanity to come to Christ and be healed. The restoration is the work of a loving father and mother who are pained that their children needlessly suffer and who have already prepared the banquet for their beloved prodigals. The restoration is today's fulfillment of an age-old promise to a worldwide family. The restoration is God's call to our 21st century world. And I just love that so much <laughs> that because I think it's it's true that when like when I think of um the Latter-day Saint tradition Mormonism broadly, you know, I you do think I do think of this thing that happened in the 19th century that was speaking about this thing that happened, you know, in the year 33. And that's kind of it. Like, no, I don't, you mentioned like these old religions kind of that are stuck in a past and I'm part of one of those. And it is really kind of hard to, for, hard to remember as like a faithful person of any tradition that these are religions that were supposed to keep talking to you. <laughs> they didn't kind right. of, I don't know. I mean, we forget that. We, how many tellings of the first vision have you heard in books on Mormon history? A, a few. <laughs> you know, you mentioned that there's like these traditions that are museums. I mean, yep. how many Roman Catholic churches are now part of historic foundations or heritage sites? And you, I've really been struck as an outsider, particularly by the discussions you have surrounding exclusivism, particularism. This is something you did in Restoration, but you also mentioned it in Proclaim Peace and what it means to be a one true church. And this is something both of our traditions have in common. I mean, many Latter-day Saints might not know that Roman Catholics used to say no salvation outside of the church. Like We've, right. we've both been part of a tradition that does this, and we've both both traditions have had to reimagine what that means in light of either not growing or plateauing or declining, you know, um, and, and just the reality of pluralism. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. What is like, yeah. what, what does that even mean? What does it mean? No yep. salvation? Like what, yeah. what are we even talking about? Um, yeah. And in light of broader ecumenical relations. And so I found a lot of value in the way that you talk about the restoration and who's included and what that looks like kind of more broadly. Um, and so I wanted to know if you could talk a little bit about what you think Latter-day Saint thought, theology, scripture can bring to an ecumenical table. Like if you were like to me, like what if I could go back to my parish and be like, hey, we should all read Restoration. Like what what do you <laughs> see this doing as part of the broader ecumenical dialogue? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think this has to be the task of, of uh, any and every religion in, in the 21st century, because the, the the question that Joseph Smith was asking in the 19th century, which church is true, and by that he really meant Methodist, Baptist, or Presbyterians. He wasn't saying like Hinduism or Judaism or, you know, that, that question, which church is true, is just not an animating question for most people in the 21st century. The, a, a far more prevalent question is actually why bother with religion at all? Uh, do, do I even need religion, uh, especially organized religion, uh, and especially one of these big churches that comes with lots of baggage with it? So, so why bother? So, I, uh, and then you, you compound that with the fact now that in most places, certainly in the United States and and really around the world, most people know good people who are not members of their religion, and so these these little, you know, kind of the old parish, you know, in in the Catholic Church or or the Mormon village. Those are gone uh, for for the most part. E even here in Utah, 
everybody has coworkers, friends, neighbors, family members now because of intermarriage who are great people. Uh, who, are, who are not members of the church. So, so the old tropes of not only can truth only be found in my tradition, but goodness as well, that just founders on the shoals of, of people's personal experience. And so so I think every every religion in the 21st century needs to develop a theology of pluralism. What does it mean to make the claims that we do and to believe that, that God or the gods uh, are in, in some ways working in special ways? among us and among this people uh, and through this tradition, while also acknowledging goodness elsewhere. And I think Latter-day Saints, especially, I mean, I I mean, you can tell me, I mean, there's a billion Catholics out there. There's, you know, maybe 16 or 17 million Latter-day Saints, 0.2% of the world's population. And so I think Latter-day Saints, especially now with, as Jen Ships, the scattering of the gathered, right? So we're not just all in these little Mormon villages. We have to make sense of it. So I, I think this is this is a long answer to your question. I apologize, but but I think the restoration tradition that we have actually is really well suited for this. I, I think the tools and the resources are already there, and not just in terms of salvation for the dead, of uh, sort of just you know uh, punting everything uh, to the next life, but actually thinking about heavenly parents who are genuinely invested in all of their children around the world, who send revelation to their children in different ways. Uh, and we have statements in the Book of Mormon and from modern church leaders to, to this effect. And so so what I was really trying to do in the book is, is find a way to say, you know, how can Latter-day Saints, you know, both affirm the distinctiveness and what's special about their tradition? I think the Book of Mormon is special. Uh, I, I think a lot of aspects of Mormon theology are really special without in some way doing that at the expense of other people's truth and, and goodness as well. I think that's really great. But I mean, and this is something like you mentioned, this isn't unique to the Latter-day right. Saint tradition that like everyone, all churches that at one time had this hard line are really having to reevaluate what that means. And along those lines, I was just thinking that you made a comment in Proclaim Peace about what specifically Latter-day Saint scripture can bring to the conversation. And when I think of, you know, when I think of like my favorite scriptural passages, they come from John, Sirach, and Moses. <laughs> Moses 139, right. for behold, this is my work of my glory. That's one of my favorite, you know, scriptures in general. I'm not a Latter-day Saint, that's one of my favorites. But you don't hear a lot about restorationist scriptures. And I'm, do you think that's a kind of a layover from 19th century anti-Mormonism? I mean, but I even think like brought it broader in terms of restorationist traditions. You don't hear a lot of like Adventists aren't brought to the ecumenical table as much as mainline Protestants. Is that a whole a holdover from the 19th century? I, I think it's both and. So certainly, I, I think there is still lingering suspicion uh, and, and skepticism uh, towards Mormons, Mormonism, and, and other groups, like you say, Adventists, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, others that maybe just aren't old enough, you know, to, to have that sort of pastiche of respectability. But I also think there are internal dynamics as well. I think we have not been good conversation partners. By we, I mean Latter-day Saints. I think we've been for, um, you could say, for, for good reasons, certainly for understandable historical reasons, we've been in a, a sectarian mode for most of our existence, where the story we've told has been us versus the world, right? We, th- there's why, why would we need to learn anything from the rest of humanity, especially other religions, when this whole thing began with God coming and telling Joseph Smith that they were all abominations uh, in, in his sight? So 
why in the world would you try to learn from an abomination? Uh, and 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 if you've got restored scriptures and living prophets and so forth, that that's all you need. I do think you know we, we're in a different moment now, uh, where where you know our church leaders, where, where the church is partnering with other with other groups. I think there's a now. I think there's a sense that the enemy, you know, there's nothing like an outside enemy to uh, give you strength and purpose. Uh, for for Latter Day Saints, I think it used to be everybody else, and especially the rest of the Christian world, and especially evangelicals. Now the outside foe is secularism, and so there's there's a there's a feeling that actually, when we look around, that that maybe we need Catholics and evangelicals and Jews and Muslims and 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 people of other faiths to to kind of link arms in common cause, and and then once you do that. Then you sit down and start to talk with each other and learn from one another, and 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 that that just changes the conversation. So I actually think you know the fact that Latter Day Saint scripture has not always been recognized, taken seriously by even by religion scholars, let alone the broader public. Uh, frankly, I th- I think that's on us uh, because I don't think we've been very good at speaking in a way and in an ecumenical mode that would make our tradition and make our scriptures available to other people that, you know, Kathleen Flake always says with, with Mormon studies that the Mormonism is, is worth studying in the academy insofar as it answers other people's questions, which means you have to know other people's questions. I think Latter-day Saints have gone to the world with our questions and our answers. Uh, it's actually just been a game of, of jeopardy. It's like we have the answers and then we're, we're trying to get people to guess our questions. And instead, I, I think we need to be better at figuring out what are other people's questions and what are ways that then we could say, hey, you know what? Actually, our tradition does speak to that. I think our traditions, again, are similar in those same ways. Catholicism hasn't been great <laughs> at right. ecumenical dialogue. And I mean, they want to be the one that you come to. Um, we don't go to you. That's been kind of a long time. St- Vatican II changed a lot of that. Right. But that, um, you know, that was 1900 years of history that, right? that we're trying to change in 50 or 60 oh, years. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. And I, th- I think there's so there could be so much on both sides to be learned from Roman Catholic and Latter-day Saint tradition and like what we've done wrong in terms of dialogue, because yeah. I think we've did a lot of the same things really wrong. But what you said, I mean, with this like common enemy idea, it really reminded me of the meeting between President Russell Nelson and Pope Francis Yeah. recently. I mean, I think Russell Nelson gave him a living Christ and a Christus statue. And I initially, when I saw it, I thought it was a family proclamation. And I immediately was like, yeah, and I'm sure it'll hang right next to the human vitae because they're the same document. And that's true. I mean, these religions can get together around this. Like, of course, these religions are now going to be talking about this when this other thing is out there that we can like team up against. So um, I do have to yeah. say that <laughs> I mean, I just laughed so hard when I saw that, like, he gave the Pope like a little statue of Jesus, right? It's like a Lutheran one... statue, Lutheran <laughs> right. statue. The one thing that is not in short supply in walking distance from, you know, the, the papal office are pretty good statues of Jesus. <laughs> uh, we do icons well. <laughs> it's yeah. like, it's our yeah. brand. Yeah, no. But but you you open with this conversation about scripture and Latter-day Saint scripture. And you won't remember this, but in 2016, you spoke at the Mormon Philosophy and Theology Conference in Claremont. You're like, I don't even know what you're about to say. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure I remember happened. I remember this incredibly well. You were like the last speaker for the conference and you spoke on Laban. And and so when and you had a picture of the Lafferty brothers in your presentation. 
And I remember just being like, oh, he's doing the thing. Like he's, he's doing the thing, which, and I think to do, I mean, doing peace studies, pacifism, nonviolence, it's hard because you have to acknowledge when your own tradition is at fault. And I think a lot of faithful scholars in any tradition usually fail at that. And so I was really impressed that I was, when I saw where you were going with this presentation, and I tell everyone about this, I'm like, this was solid. He's willing to like, not only study what peace studies and pacifism looks like, but he's willing to acknowledge when his tradition does it wrong. And I don't think that's something everyone can do. And so when you, when this book came out, Proclaim Peace, I was really excited because I was like, this is, there's going to be no fluff around. We've always been the most peaceful people. Let me tell you about it. There's one passage that you say, the God of the restoration exercises power through persuasion, not compulsion, truth, not deception, compassion, not coercion, selflessness, not avarice, gentleness, meekness, kindness, and love unfeigned, not violence, reproving the times with sharpness, but afterwards showing forth an increase of love. And I hear Latter-day Saints talk about an increase of love. That's a phrase that you hear quite a bit. But that's hard to grasp tangibly. Like Violence is going to happen. You talk about this. Conflict happens. Sometimes violent conflict happens. But then you talk about when it happens, there's an importance of an increase of love. And if if you were writing, you know, the Latter-day Saint peace ethic, what does that look like as part of it? Yeah, I, I think it it has to look like being proactive to to think quite intentionally about the needs and wants of those who have been on the receiving end of our violence, even if it we think it's justified violence. So I actually think a, a really good example, it's not a Latter-day Saint example, but it's an example that, that people would know well would be the Marshall Plan after World War II where uh, I, I think this is actually one of the great moments in, in American history where, where, where the, the American nation is actually quite generous towards its defeated enemies. Now, you could say there's a political purpose to this. It was in the context of the Cold War. They didn't want them to fall to communism, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, all, and all of that is true. But it, nevertheless, it's a good example of showing generosity even towards towards those who have formerly been our foes. And you know, this is there, there's this great quote, and we we cited in the book. There was a great article by uh, President Spencer Kimball in 1976, uh, where he talks about the false gods we worship, and and he's quite critical of Mormon militarism and American militarism. And he says, you know, we we quote the Sermon on the Mount, and and we quote Jesus saying, "Love your enemies," and then what do we do? We build planes and bombs and missiles and all this kind of stuff. I don't have the quote right in front of me, but he says, you know, can't we take the Savior at His word? And he says, our mission is not to defeat our enemies. Our mission is to love in such a way that our enemies are no longer enemies. And, and so I, I think that's the notion of an increase of love here, that, that actually the burden for reconciliation, the burden for putting, us, putting ourselves in right relationship with the, the people that we've been in conflict with, that burden falls primarily not on the other person, but it falls on us. And it's um, it's that kind of surplus of generosity, a, a kind of unreasonable <laughs> generosity that in Christian theology we call grace. And and so that's uh, and, and of course, that scripture, you know, we were riffing off of Section 121 there. And, and for us, that's really the key to this kind of nonviolent theology in so many different ways. But part of it is this surfeit of grace. That, that we're called upon to, to display even towards those that we've been in conflict with. 
And I see, I see that as such a departure, I guess, from general, I guess, Christian ethics on violence, like kind of the standard Christian approach to violence is just war theory, which comes out of the Catholic tradition. It's not nonviolent. No. Like it's it's not. It's and the, the could, whole point is how can we be violent? Right. It absolutely is a violent way of approaching the world. And so it's such a to, this idea of loving your enemies until they're no longer enemies. That's such a radical departure from what most of Christianity has done in terms of Yeah, and of I have violence. to say, I mean as as much as I admire the Catholic tradition, this is this is just one place where I think Augustine gets it wrong. Um, and Augustine is so important and is the father of, of so much of Catholic theology and really Western civilization and Western thought. But he didn't fully systematize just war theory, but but his ideas were really crucial in forming it. And, you know, and Augustine, I, I think, you know, fully out of sincerity and within his historical context and so forth. I mean, he was trying to take seriously Jesus's teachings on love, but he was also doing it within, imperi- within an imperial context. And and so for him, he made the argument that that sometimes in the face of evil, recognizing that there is evil in the world, that there are evildoers in the world, he said that that there are times in which the the greatest love that we can show an evildoer may be to to kill them, uh, to stop them from committing the sin that they're about to do, whether it be violence or some heinous form of blasphemy or or something like that, truly egregious sins that would put their their salvation at risk. Now I understand the logic behind that. It's just not a Jesus based logic. You know, Jesus, uh, the God of Christianity, uh, subjects himself to the cross rather than uh, turning the table on on his oppressors. And so I think Augustine's logic, which is the logic of just war, uh, which becomes the dominant moral paradigm for Europe and then Christendom and gets exported to the rest of the world, I I just don't think it's based in Jesus. <laughs> and and I'm not the David and I aren't the first to think this. I think the Anabaptists, you know, have, have been right on this. I, I think lots of other people have have looked at the Sermon on the Mount, looked at the teachings and life and example of Jesus and said, it doesn't look like he's teaching just war theory. Yeah, no, I mean, I would not disagree with you on this, I mean, <laughs> at all. But yeah, I mean, St. Augustine. And to be Augustine, fair, just war theorists recognize this. I mean, they're right. smart people. Yeah. And they say, well, it's an individual ethic. It's not a political ethic. You know, the Sermon on the Mount is not a political ethic. I mean, so they have answers for these kinds of questions. I happen to find those answers unsatisfactory, uh, yeah, like like Anabaptists and, and others. And so, and I, and I think Restoration Scripture, what we really hope, that this book isn't just like David and Patrick's personal opinions, uh, David Pulsifer, my co-author, uh, but it was really trying to do a deep dive in what does Restoration Scripture say about uh, how does a follower of Jesus respond uh, to, to conflict and to violence. Yeah, and one of the parts that about that's really, I think, specific to not just Restoration Scripture, but Restoration Theology generally, you have a, a section where you talk about individual versus kind of societal redemption and atonement. And I think that's something that's kind of shared across Christianity, right? Like the earth groans for redemption. Like most Christianity will acknowledge this. But within that section, you bring up a very particular Latter-day Saint doctrine where, yes, Jesus dies on the cross, but the atonement doesn't happen there, which is so unique to Latter-day Saint doctrine. I mean, I don't know of any other religion that has any kind of focus on Gethsemane other than the Garden of Repose, you know, in Catholic teaching. Can you talk a little bit about what that contributes, the Garden, like a focus on the Garden? 
Yeah, I, th- I think yeah, I, I think Latter Day Saints mostly don't know <laughs> how, how distinctive that that is, frankly, because uh, we're not very good at interfaith dialogue. I'll never remember. I was in a dialogue group with with a group of other Christian scholars, and we were talking about atonement theology, and and we shared this Latter Day Saint emphasis on Gethsemane. And they're like, "What?" Uh, and and actually, they, they 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 found it quite beautiful and quite touching. They said, "We've never thought about uh, Jesus's sufferings in Gethsemane." Uh, and he, so this actually connected them to, to Jesus and to their Lord in, in ways that they hadn't previously considered. So I, I think it's a it's a beautiful addition to Christian teaching. And so for us, and and this is you know we're we're just throwing an idea out there and seeing if it sticks. But we're we're very comfortable with and and we find deeply meaningful this Latter Day Saint teaching on on Jesus's uh, atonement that, that he works out in Gethsemane. And it seems, and, and we're sort of going along with kind of mainstream Latter Day Saint teaching here, that this is where Jesus atones for the sins of you and me and every person who's ever lived in the world. That that, that Jesus really seems to be foca- focusing on this kind of individual redemption on my sins, your sins, all this kind of stuff, all this kind of stuff. That's that's quite blithe to talk about the sins of of humanity. But the, you know, but but then Latter-day Saints have to, you know, make sense of the cross. For the most part, we haven't. We've mostly ignored it uh, to our detriment. Where there have been statements, it's people sometimes saying things like, well, all of the sufferings of Gethsemane recurred on, on the cross. That's also never been satisfactory to me, because if we say that his sufferings in Gethsemane were infinite, it seems like God is either a sadist or a really bad mathematician uh, if he's requiring infinity to be multiplied twice. Um, so that doesn't make any sense to me. And so what we suggest is that that what's going on the cross is a different kind of salvation, that, that the cross speaks to the fallenness of our society, of our political communities, of the way that we relate to one another, the fact that we would crucify our God. We collectively as humans, that's what the cross is. The, the passion narratives are meant to implicate all of humanity in God's crucifixion. And so so we think, we, we believe that the crucifixions followed up by the resurrection really speaks to uh, God's condemnation of the way that we have organized our societies around violence, around coercion, but also a different way that Jesus both condemns us from the cross, but liberates us from the cross as well. So, so for us, it's really a both and. Gethsemane is beautiful, deeply meaningful uh, in terms of God's salvation of our souls. But then that salvation continues on the cross uh, in terms of God's salvation of our societies. Yeah. And I can't highlight enough what you said about how different that is from like, this is something that is so uniquely part of the Latter-day Saint tradition, like even in thinking of like the sorrowful mysteries of the rosary as like kind of the only comparative, like the yeah. garden, the agony in the garden is the first one, right? Right. But, and this is going to, I don't know, I don't want to like, <laughs> but that's kind of like the mystery, the first mystery that kind of just like move on. Right. And then it's like the scourging <laughs> at the pillar, the crowning of thorns, right. the carrying the cross and the crucifixion. Yeah. Right. And it's kind of like a, and I think in I think in kind of like an inverse in Catholic theology, like yes, we do Maundy Thursday, yes, we do the Garden of Repose, but I think the Garden is—I don't want to speak for most Catholics. I don't know. I mean, to me at least, it's certainly not. You kind of have to do that to get to Good Friday, yeah. um, to talk about yeah. the crucifixion. It's and so the I think, place where he gets arrested. <laughs> right. It's like yeah, there's the betrayal, right. and then like I don't know, like right. some of us like go to mass for 24 hours, or like at least overnight. Like I don't know, but I think there's something like that can be learned from mainline Christianity and Mormonism of that one does the garden really well. And one does crucifixion real like Catholicism does crucifixes really well. And that there's something to be learned about 
honoring this experience of Jesus that the other just doesn't. And and there's something to be learned from from our Protestant sisters and brothers yep. who have the empty cross as well. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that actually each one of these captures uh, a really powerful element of of Jesus's suffering. Oh, ab- yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've talked to my boyfriend who's Anglican about how I love Good Friday and like Easter comes and goes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that's, but if that's not if that's not the most kind of that's like know, the most Catholic thing that anybody's ever said. <laughs> <laughs> right, I mean, that's like old school medieval Catholicism. Yeah, right, like we right. do a, the you know the crucifix. We can't imagine there not being a body on it, and so Protest- a, a, a bloodied, beaten, oh yeah, bruised. Which, which Latter Day Saints, because of our Victorian sensibilities and so forth. We are so, um, boy, we, we, we cannot look at Jesus on the cross. We, we cannot. We can't stand it. Insofar as we think about the cross, it's the Protestant cross, the empty one, which, which again, is, is meaningful in, in many ways. But, boy, Latter-day Saints are so uncomfortable with, with the, the bloodied body of Christ on, on the cross. But, but I think we have to gaze at it. We he wants us to gaze at. I mean, in Third Nephi twenty seven in the Book of Mormon, he says, "God put me on the cross. The Father put me on the cross for people to look at." He wants us to to see him there in his suffering. Protestantism does bring in like they are, you know, they sing the song like "We're an Easter people and Hallelujah is our song." <laughs> uh, yeah. And there's something that each of these can really learn from each other. I mean, they do love Easter, but. Like I really like Good Friday, and I barely and I and I don't think about you know Thursday as much as I I, I think about it more now that I know Latter Day Saints for sure. Well, and unfortunately, we we're so we're just not liturgical, so we don't do anything with with Thursday liturgically, right? We, we talk a lot about Gethsemane all the time, actually, because when we talk about the atonement, so so no, I've just been so enriched. Uh, my faith has been deepened by engaging with. Good Friday by going to Good Friday services, you know th- these kinds of things, and thinking in ways that th- this is what having friends of other religions or being curious and and in a religious dialogue, this is what it does is it opens up your your mind and heart, and ultimately, for me, and and this is part of the message of restoration, right? This this is not threatening to your faith because ultimately it's a story about God, God's love for uh, and redemption of all of humanity. So if I can learn a little bit more and get a taste of that from my sisters and brothers elsewhere, then why wouldn't I want that? Yeah. And for Latter-day Saints listening, I know a lot of Latter-day Saints who like go to mass on Christmas or like, you know, kind of want to see what Catholics do on our like two big holidays. I would do like a general encouragement of like going on the Thursday before Easter and seeing it's really the only time that we talk about the Garden of Gethsemane, but there might be, you know, there might be something interesting there. I don't know. Yeah. Another time where I saw a lot of Catholicism in your book, of course, I'm reading, I read everything through that that lens. You mention in Proclaim Peace, indeed, if God does show any kind of preference, it is in favor of the poor. And in Roman Catholicism and Catholic social teaching, we have the preferential option for the poor. But this is really hard to consider for everyone because usually we talk about God is not a respecter of persons, but then all of a sudden we talk about, but me, but if he were to be like, God is not a respecter of persons, but if he was, who would get that? And I think that's really hard, especially in the 21st century where, you know, the health and wealth prosperity gospel really did impact everyone. 
uh, everyone. And this idea of blessings being, like, you know, happening for certain people, um, that sticks out for everyone. I mean, you don't have to be part of the prosperity gospel movement to be influenced by it. And so how, I guess, how do you think this idea influences Latter-day Saint thought? Should it influence us more, us being everyone listening? And what does that kind of look like in Latter-day Saint theology? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, first of all, yeah, that phrase is a complete ripoff from Catholic social teaching. Uh, I mean, yeah, that is uh, that is a definite tip of the hat to uh, the preferential option for the poor, which I have to say, when I encountered Catholic social teaching when I was at Notre Dame, it like my brain exploded. Uh, I was like, yes, um, a thousand yeses. So beautiful. I mean, if people have not encountered or studied Catholic social teaching, uh, do. I mean, it's. I, I think it's one of the one of the many beautiful parts of, of that tradition that we all have a lot to learn from. But I, I think you're right that we um, in the 20th and 21st century, for lots of different reasons, and you and I could geek out on the historical reasons uh, for this, that we have landed on a very individualist, uh, very prosperity based notion of of God's favor. And and you're exactly right that it cuts across religions, but Mormonism is not immune to this. Not by a long shot. Just look at the houses next to any temple that's built, especially in Utah. They're not small houses. And they're mostly not occupied by non-Latter-day Saints. You know, but but the thing is when we revisit our scriptures, that is not the message. It's not the message of the Hebrew Bible. The I've been revisiting some of the Hebrew prophets, uh, Amos and Micah uh, and Hosea and Isaiah, they don't have a lot of good things to say about rich people. Jesus does not, I mean, I, I, I was actually just yesterday, I was corresponding with one of my good friends. He said he had just blasted through all four gospels, like all in one goal. And he said he, he lives in a very affluent place in this country, and he himself has been very successful. He said, that was a way to kind of rip off the Band-Aid and realize that Jesus doesn't have a lot of good things to say about the rich. I mean, the, the, I mean, if, if you track the fate of the rich in Jesus's teachings and parables, it's, it's not good. And then the Book of Mormon is unrelenting about this as well. I mean, yes, there will be prosperity when people are righteous, uh, but that's usually not a good sign because it doesn't lead to good things. And so, so I don't think, you know, People listening, I mean, some people may immediately like their neo-Marxist flags, maybe, you know, raising right now or something like that and say, well, we don't have to pit people against one another and God loves everybody. And Jesus wasn't really talking about rich people when he was talking about the eye, you know, the camel going through the eye of the needle, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The scriptures are plain and and I'm as convicted as anybody. I live a very comfortable middle, you know, class lifestyle here in the most prosperous nation in the history of the world. So I feel convicted by this, and, and I think this is something we have to wrestle with. We've we've chosen to forget this part of our tradition, even though it cuts through every one of our books of Scripture. The Doctrine and Covenants, I mean, my goodness, it talks about inequality more explicitly than any other book of Latter-day Saint Scripture, and we just gloss right over it. And so I think this is this is something that we... Yes, we could talk about the general level of prosperity and, uh, you know, the capitalism is broad. It's uh, all those kinds of things. But still, the the inequalities that we see, the poverty that we see in this country and especially around the world, uh, I cannot imagine that God feels happy that the general GDP has gone up. And yet literally billions of people on this planet 
um, still don't know where their next meal is coming from. That's that, that's a shame and a scandal for all Christians. I, I agree with that completely. And again, the Latter-day Saint tradition has something to say about that. They have a vision for a world where people live with one heart and one mind, where there is no poor yeah. among them. It's Zion. Uh, Absolutely. Which it's, I start- it's a powerful vision. And, yeah. and, and it's actually, um, Latter-day Saints are good at this. I mean, when, when, when yeah. we've set our mind and heart to it, in in a very kind of small scale experiments, but that's okay. It's it's hard to tackle global poverty, right? But so what can you do right in front of you? Uh, Latter-day Saints, there is a vision, there's language, there are tools, there are resources, and it's it's not Im- impossible. I, I always, you know, say when, when Jesus said, you know, the poor will always be with you, that's not an excuse, it's a challenge. Um, he said, what are you going to do about it? And Latter-day Saints do have a vision. Zion is a vision of uh, addressing that fundamental problem. I mean, I've, if I were to call your, like, look at what Proclaim Peace is, you know, we have Catholic social teaching, I would look at it as a Zion ethic of what does an ethic of a Zion people look like. And you mentioned that Zion isn't inward facing. It's not kind of looking in at itself. It's also not passive. You don't just get to like, be like, well, I'm at peace. So I'm living my best Zion me. life. <laughs> yeah. So I'm living my Zion and I'm moving and my family is happy and whatever. It's not passive. It's an active thing. Um, so if you were to have to think through like, what does a Zion ethic, what would it be? Is it, is it even possible? Has Zion fled? Are we, what are we doing? Well, I, I think that's right. And, and, and I'm glad you used that term because an ethic is exactly what David and I were talking about. Like we wanted to write a Latter-day Saint ethic of peace and nonviolence. And and that's different because Latter-day Saints were so much more comfortable talking about morality. Uh, and usually morality is performed and, and done at the individual level. But ethics necessarily is about society and community and our relationship with one another. And I, I think Latter-day Saints, we just we've been strong, we've been better at morality than we have been at ethics. Uh, and and I think we have to get better at ethics. And so what what does it look like? What does a Zion ethic look like? Uh, I, I'm actually quite hopeful. I actually agree. President Nelson said peace is possible, and I agree with him. I think Latter-day Saint scripture tells us that humans can do this. Enoch did it. In 4th Nephi, they did it. Uh, in Acts 2 and 4, they did it, right? That, that we have this handful of, of times, enough times for it to say it wasn't a one-off, uh, that it actually is possible. Uh, sometimes it takes a long time. Enoch Zion took 300 years to build. And so patience is part of it. But I think uh, the vision of the society that we see in Fourth Nephi, that is the vision, a, a vision where there is no rich and poor, a vision of deeply converted people who care deeply about their families, but not just their families. They care about everybody else's families, too. There's no manner of ites. They're not divided by, by class, by race, by ethnicity, by education levels, other kinds of things. They care more about other people's welfare than their own. They have all things in common. They refuse to, to resort to violence and coercion. And most of all, their hearts are knit together in love. And now that's that's a, a, a pretty sketchy blueprint. I would say, I mean, if when, you know, at the pearly gates, I meet Mormon, I will say, thank you, a thousand thanks. But then I will shake him by his toga and say, 20 war chapters and half a chapter on fourth Nephi. Come on, man. Right. Your editorial priorities were all out of whack. But uh, because I want more, like, what does Zion actually look like? How do you do education in Zion? How do you do parenting in Zion? What do tax policies look like in Zion? What, you know, I mean, all those kinds of things. And maybe 
And then, you know, that, that, that comes back to the ongoing restoration, right? We have to figure some of this stuff out. We, we have the vision. We have the charge. We have the mandate. Uh, we have prophets telling us that this is possible. Joseph Smith's vision was about exaltation and Zion. That is Joseph Smith's vision for the world. So we've been charged to do this. So now we got to get to work. Uh, it's it's not just going to plop down in our laps, and it's not going to happen just by talking about individual morality within the the, the, the walls of our homes. So we we've got to turn Zion outward and and think about our role and relationship with the rest of the world. Moses said Zion was not, but maybe, but but yet it might be. <laughs> it might be. <laughs> it's not here right now, but we can build it. Moses build is it. my favorite of the Latter Day Saint books. There's great stuff in there. Yeah. So what's next for you? So I've always got my fingers in in too many different things. I'm seriously contemplating, depending on funding, making a documentary film about the Hill Cumorah. I have other sort of books for the church uh, that people keep pressuring me to write, but I want to write some, do some other academic writing too. I'm really interested in 20th century Mormon American conservatism. So I have a project that conceptualized around that. So I need to get to work. So I've got lots of things uh, that I'm doing that, that keep me busy. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Dialogue Book Report. And I want to encourage everyone to get restoration and proclaim peace. Thank you thank so much. Now, appreciate it, Christina. Thank you for listening to the Dialogue Book Report. This show is produced and edited by Andrew Hall with additional editing and music by Daniel Foster Smith. Our content manager is Emily Jensen. This show is part of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging discussion of all aspects of the LDS, Mormon, tradition, thought, and culture. <laughs>